I, I think what the book does is to seek to explain the, the, the legal controls over statues and also how the debates are being played out in terms of the decision-making. So what is to be looked at and what we discuss is particularly the way in which the conventional approaches of heritage protection, artistic, architectural, historic interest, and how that is preserved is also now being considered in the context of the acceptability of uh, the individuals or the ideas being memorialized uh, and the way in which some of those debates may be carried out and uh, decision-making reached on it. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Queen's Council barrister and author Richard Harwood discussing his recent book, Contested Heritage, Removing Art from Land and Historic Buildings, which covers this intriguing topic in three parts, regulatory consents in the UK, ownership, which the book describes as a troubled concept in English law, and concludes with a case study about the now infamous statue of slave trader Edward Colston that was forcibly removed from its plinth and tossed in the Bristol Harbor during a BLM protest in 2020. I had the honor of co-hosting this episode with Institute of Art and Law Assistant Director Emily Gould, whose conversation with Mr. Harwood shows the rich depth of this book. Richard Harwood and Emily Gould, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you both so much for being on the podcast. Stephanie, thank you for um, inviting us along. Richard, would you start with giving an overview of your book, Contested Heritage, Removing Art from Land and Historic Buildings? Okay. Well, what does it start with two stories? Man walks into an auction house, not terribly unusual, uh, walks into an auction house holding a piece of plaster, which has come from the, the kitchen wall. Um, not a particularly interesting piece of plaster in itself, but what it has on it um, is a painting by Lucien Freud as a, a, a mural because he's taking it from the house he's just sold. Uh, that was a house which previously had been occupied by um, Lucien Freud, who'd painted uh, uh, a flower on it. Um, when uh, the man sells his house, he takes, he ta- takes the painting with him uh, and tries to sell it. Now, he, he owns it, he's removed it. The house was a listed building. Uh, could it be sold uh, lawfully? Another is an uh, example of the Rustat Memorial at, as it happens, my old uh, college, Jesus College at Cambridge. It was a memorial put up for uh, a manager, benefactor of the college from the 17th century, um, but who subsequently seemed... Uh, had been heavily involved in investing in the slave trade. And so when we get to 2022, uh, the college want the memorial removed from the chapel uh, because of the um, past of their previously um, illustrious benefactor. So those are the two sorts of issues which we're dealing with uh, in the book, where to one extent art is part of a building or land, the ownership issues that follow from that, 
and also the regulatory consequence. And the tests are applied both in perhaps the conventional heritage sense, but also with the, the current debates um, about contested heritage and often the characters of the people who are memorialised very publicly. Richard, thanks very much for that introduction. And uh, Stephanie, before we go on, I just want to say thank you for inviting me to, to co-host this interview, which I have to say, I've been delighted to, um, I was delighted to accept your invitation because uh, I, I so much enjoyed reading um, Richard's book um, and really getting into some of the detail of these fascinating and very topical issues. Um, and Richard, just um, following on from your introduction, um, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit more about what, what the title really means. So what are we talking about when we're thinking about contested heritage? I mean, I think those initial stories you've given us have already um, sort of drawn us into some of the, um, some of the reasons why um, a work of art or other memorial or statue or the subject of dispute. But maybe you could describe a little bit more how that, how that comes about and, and why we uh, can describe some of these heritage assets as contested. Uh, contested heritage in this context is, to my mind, where there is a um, political or moral debate about the presence or the location of uh, the items because of who or what they represent. Um, and in some other contexts, it's concerned with the mode of acquisition. Uh, the book, which uh, co-authored with two of my colleagues in Chambers, Catherine Dobson and David Sortel, is concerned with contested heritage and other artwork, which is related to buildings or land and questions of removal. Now, in the field of contested heritage, that's primarily driven by memorialization of individuals or potentially of events and a dispute about whether or not they should be commemorated so publicly. Uh, there's a, a broader element of contested heritage should retain an item because of either of own underlying ownership issues or because of how it was acquired. So the questions of the Benny Bronzes uh, and the like. The book, in our case, we are focusing on uh, uh, items of art and uh, other heritage matters which are associated with buildings or land. Uh, and in the contested heritage sense, those tend to be where the dispute is about whether or not that person should still be seen to have a high-profile uh, memorial uh, to them, given... Uh, what what they actually did uh, or thought in their life. Thanks, Richard. And um, I think you've already sort of alluded to uh, to some of the reasons why you might have been inspired to write this book now, because some of these issues um, and some of the cases you look at go back some way. But um, without a doubt, it seems that there has been um, a sort of convergence of various world events um, and sort of new ways of thinking within the museum sphere and beyond, um, which have really brought a lot of these issues to light in recent times. That, that's right. And there's two things which have really um, coalesced to be sort of the impetus for the book. 
Um, one is the, the contested heritage aspects, um, which we've been discussing. We'll come to uh, the Colston statue being thrown in Bristol Harbour. Um, I've already mentioned the Rust Memorial at Jesus College. Uh, and so that debate of memorialization and the, the government approach in response to that. But also this question of whether a work of art is part of a building, who owns it potentially, uh, to what extent is it subject to listed building control, is something which has been an issue for the art market uh, for many years. Uh, it comes up as a topic on where items are being sold, when they're being exported, when you're looking at acceptance in lieu. And uh, whilst that's been an issue that sort of bumbled along, usually it's fairly low profile, usually it gets sorted out um, fairly quietly. Uh, myself and Catherine Dobson uh, had a case which went all the way up to the UK Supreme Court. Uh, about a pair of lead urns, and the Dill case becomes the key authority in the, the UK courts about what is or isn't subject to listed building control. Uh, and so it's those two matters, the Dill case and uh, the contested heritage disputes, which sort of come together to um, hopefully make this book uh, quite timely. Absolutely. I wonder if um, you want to... Um to give us a bit more insight into that Dill case now, it might be a good opportunity to do that and maybe take us through through the basic facts of that case, um, which I always think uh, people who maybe don't have much of a background in this area of law might be quite surprised about. Uh, as I, th I think you mentioned, this, this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, the decision-making by the Supreme Court and, and, and what impact that is going to have on this, this area of law. Absolutely. And I, the, the, becomes a matter in Dill started really three centuries ago uh, when a pair of uh, lead urns were um, produced by John Van Nost and uh, those were placed in Rest Park so uh, in what these days we would call a stately home, uh, and then put on top of limestone slab piers um, uh, about um, in the late 1720s. They stayed at Rest Park for two centuries or so. Uh, and then in 1939, the family who owned uh, the park moved out, sold the, sold the park, uh, and moved out with various items of stannery, including these lead urns and, and their peers. And uh, the um, urns and peers are then sort of moved around the, the English Midlands for a few decades with the family from sort of one house to another, put in the garden and so on. Uh, then, in, then in 1973, they were um, brought to their sort of a final English resting place, um, which is Idlicott House uh, in Warwickshire, and um, sort of put sort of either side of the driveway. Now, what the Dill case concerned with was the extent of listed building control. These urns disappear in the list of listed buildings. Uh, my client, Marcus Dill, sold the urns and peers at auction. Uh, unaware of the listing, 
2015, local planning authority find out uh, that the urns have disappeared. They then issue uh, an enforcement notice, which requires um, the landowner, Mr. Dill, to return them. Uh, he can't do that. He doesn't know where they are. Uh, I'm, I'm instructed to act for Marcus Dill. And one of the points we take is that uh, these items are not actually buildings. They don't, we say, meet the, the legal test for being a building. And so even though they're on the list, they can't be listed building. Uh, lose. Take the case up to the Supreme Court. Catherine Dobson, who becomes one of my co-authors on this, joins me uh, in working on the case. And the Supreme Court allow uh, Marcus Dill's appeal. They say, first of all, well, he has the right to challenge decisions of public authorities which directly affect him. So he can raise the question as to whether or not these are buildings. And then the Supreme Court looks at the question of, well, what are the legal tests for whether something is uh, capable of being a listed building? And take the view, well, it's a matter of size, it's a matter of degree of attachment, it's a matter of how permanent uh, the item is. And they also look at the tests which apply to whether or not works of art and other things are attached to listed buildings. Um, and take a, a slightly different approach uh, to those. But it, the, the Supreme Court set out that fundament, the fundamental tests which are applied. They don't resolve the questions whether or not um, the lead urns are actually buildings. Um, and as Emily, as you, you will recall from uh, the teaching we do together, um, Queen Mary's um, art and uh, Law, law LLM. Um, it's a classic um, uh, examinations or students' question what, as what the answer would be in Dill. Uh, but the Supreme Court also made very clear that they thought the whole thing had been going on long enough and it was about time the public authorities dropped it, uh, So, which is uh, what happened. So uh, the, the enforcement proceedings were uh, at an end. The Supreme Court set out um, quite quite firmly, what was its, its only uh, heritage or art-related decision? Yeah, funny you should mention the, the LLM because I was thinking as I read this book that this is going to become um, an absolutely core text for, for students, I think, uh, of this, this area of law. Um, uh, because as you mentioned, you know, it has so many the the decision that you've just talked about and many of the other issues and cases discussed in the book um have such um an important impact i think when we were writing it um the three of us had in mind not only the the interests of the art market and art lawyers and uh, heritage and planning professionals who deal with a lot of these issues um but also of the various students so what 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 i talk about when i'm uh uh helping with your course and what david sortel talks to with his uh, land law students he does some teaching at peterhouse cambridge uh what Catherine dobson does when uh she deals with constitutional um law uh at cambridge as well so uh, i think we had we had in mind sort of what our own little 
little, little syllabuses um, were as well as what is useful for practitioners. Absolutely. And I think the style of the book, too, is to, it just absolutely lends itself to that. We have these lovely little sort of summaries at the end of um, some of the chapters going through some of these tests, because um, I always find this area of law utterly fascinating. Um, but I always have to go back and remind myself of the various tests for, you know, fixtures and annexation when we're thinking about listed buildings and then the planning regime. There are so many different layers and something um, that I often think about actually teaching art law more generally um, is just how many particular legal disciplines it engages. People, when they think about art law, um, might think that it's, um, you know, a very sort of niche area and, um, you know, oh, you could easily write all of that in a 60 page textbook. But of course, when we delve into the issues, uh, it touches on so very many different areas. Um, and I, I wonder if you can maybe just give us a very quick overview of some of the um, areas of law that, that uh, you know, we have to think about when we look at some of these cases. I think in, t- in terms of what we do, we're covering, uh, and this a relatively small part of art law, um, but the issues which we um, throw up and deal with in the book are regulatory ones. So listed building, consent planning permission, what is or isn't a scheduled monument. And that has implications for questions of export licensing as well. Uh, street naming comes up. Uh, that is one of the contentious aspects. I think we'll come back to it in later on in our chat. Um of contested heritage as to who streets have been named after. Um, we look in quite a bit of detail at property ownership, disputes in the 19th century between um, various heirs and, and the like, sort of family families basically, or um, industrialists' status of their um, machinery uh, in their factories. Uh, right bang up to the 20th and debates about who owns uh, public art. So we look at those issues. Uh, we look at the very different regime that applies to items in uh, churches, which are part of the Church of England, uh, and how those are dealt with. So it's quite a mix, but and that is a mix within a very narrow part uh, of our law. But as you say, Emily, these sorts of sectoral areas of law throw up so many legal di- disciplines uh, to deal with the problems which, which arise, which is one thing that always makes it fascinating. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, if I could just pick up on um, one of those um, points and those sort of complex interactions that you mentioned there uh, between um, sort of personal property law and we're thinking about ownership of chattels uh, and land law. Uh, you mentioned uh, that the cases in that area go right up to the 21st century. And what I have in mind is um, what's often um, known as the old flow case, um, which was a, a quite a fascinating decision. I wonder if you could you could take us through the main issues on that one. Yes, it's uh, known less interestingly as London Borough of Tower Hamlets and London Borough of Bromley. Uh, but what it concerns is a uh, monumental Henry Moore uh, uh, statue called Grape Seated Woman. And that was placed in 
a housing estate by the Greater London Council uh, as part of its post-war works. Greater London Council was subsequently abolished in 1986, and its assets went either to the local authority in the particular area, in this case Tower Hamlets, uh, or to a residuary body, which was ultimately ended up coming under the control of London Borough Bromley. Um, many decades, I don't know why many decades, but many decades after the GLC had been uh, wound up, the dispute arose as to whether or not Old Flow, which had been kept by Tower Hamlets and sent up to a, a sculpture museum in Yorkshire, in England, uh, was owned by Tower Hamlets or owned by um, Bromley as the residuary of the Great London Council. And one of the issues was whether or not Old Flow had become part of the land. If the statue had done, it would then be owned by Tower Hamlets. And so the court considered uh, the uh, test, which ultimately confirmed in a different context in Dill, of looking at the purpose and degree of annexation. And the court concluded, in fact, that Old Flow had never become part of the land because uh, the purpose of annexation was to appreciate old flow. It wasn't to be part of the design of, of the land there and that um, the sculpture could be appreciated um, in East London or in Cologne or in Melbourne, wherever uh, editions of, of it were. Ultimately, as it happened, uh, Tower Hamlets, even though they weren't entitled to old flow, had um, held on for long enough to satisfy the limitation period. And uh, the, the statue was so finally um, brought back to East London and is now in Cabot Square, which is part of the Canary Wharf uh, development in Docklands. And we have a photo of uh, old flow uh, in Cabot Square on the front cover of the book, but um, it's become uh, the sort of first case that English land law students are taught the question of what is the part of the land and what is separately a chattel. Yes, it's, it's a case that we often talk about on our course when it, we call the session definitional disputes. And we, we're thinking about cases where in essence, the definition of art, what is an artistic work, almost becomes the or a determinative factor in a, in a court decision. So in the old flow case, we think about the fact that um, the court considered that old flow could be enjoyed as a work of art anywhere in the world that so so that that was that was an important factor in her not being just you know part of that land she was a chattel in her own right um so I think that's that's just a, a kind of a, a an interesting angle that, that we bring to that we talk about a lot of other cases in completely different contexts where that question of you know what is what is a work of art has some impact on on the court's decision making some of the outcomes are, are not always that easy to predict, I guess we could say. In, in, in part, I think the general tenor of the case law um, has been in favour of 
treating sort of works of art which are capable of being standalone, like paintings or uh, statues, as sort of being chattels, very distinct from something like a fireplace or an overmantel. Uh, but it is, in a large extent, a, a matter of impression. And um, vi- vi- I was visiting um, one house a few years ago where we were concerned with the question of whether or not various paintings were chattels or part of the house. There's great implications for uh, inheritance tax um, valuation. That was a reason for the exercise. And uh, I walked into what was the old library in the house and fixed to the walls sort of between the panels were paintings uh, where the owner very many years ago who had uh, had the library built had displayed paintings of his heroes essentially sort of warriors statesmen poets and the like and simply walking in into there it immediately struck me that those paintings and who they were of were very much part of the design of that room so that he could sort of sit there surrounded by his heroes. And my view in that case was that those particular paintings were part of the design of the room uh, and so were part of the building rather than being separately chattels. Um, conversely, there were um, other parts of the, the house where paintings had been there for a long time. Uh, some of them uh, commissioned specifically for that, others sort of gifted for a friend and put up and so on, but which weren't, in, in, in my view, and also the local authorities' view, uh, part of the building. So there's quite an important, actually, matter of impression. Uh, and there are some cases where um, it is sort of on, on the edge, um, but, but quite often um, there, there's a relatively um, clear view which way it goes. Uh, mm. it's, and it's interesting how um, it's very much sort of assets by asset approach i.e. you can't walk into a room and say well quite clearly all the panels here the fireplace all all the pictures all the freestanding statues they are all clearly um part of this property or not um because as, as you say um you know some of them might be very much part of the design of the room whilst others might have been placed there at a later date might not really have any connection with with that property Yes, it's important to have in mind that um, what listed building control is about is about preserving buildings rather than the siting of movable chattels. And also that the the ownership cases, which underpin quite a few of the concepts, um, were also ones about deciding who has it, particularly where the, the ownership of the house is separate to um, uh, the person who's actually living there for the time being because they have a, in the olden sort of Jane Austen, Downton Abbey type sort of sense of things, they have a life interest in it. 
So it's, it's a system of control which is trying to draw a distinction between buildings and uh, movable property. Mm, thanks, Richard. I wonder if we could um, sort of maybe change tack a little bit now and what the main considerations are when uh, a local authority, say, is, is faced with a, let's just count it very generally, uh, a request, a desire to remove a contested statue. So a group has got together, they um, they are, uh, you know, they, they very much oppose a, a particular display of a particular statue or memorial in their locality, perhaps because um, they are concerned about the character or the history associated. Well, uh, the likelihood that there's some form of consent process is required, uh, there's a building consent or planning permission in that process. So there has to be a decision based on uh, those factors. Now, conventionally, when you're looking at list of building consent, you're concerned with a strong presumption in favour of the preservation of the listed building. Uh, that's about preventing harm to its special architectural or historic interest. And so in the conventional removal of art type situations, um, where you're dealing with something which is part of the building, uh, then uh, its removal is often actually been quite difficult to consent because you're taking something away from the building very often. One question which arises, which we talk about in the book, is, well, what's the relevance of the fact that people don't like this particular historic statue? Uh, Because those are not conventionally matters that have come up uh, in questions of alterations of listed buildings. But there is potential relevance where you're concerned with public sector equality duty, which is cons- dealing with the elimination of discrimination, advancing equality of opportunity, and fostering good relations, where people have got protected characteristics, which can include um, their, their race. The other sort of aspect is that there are some cases where the possibility that a particular use of land may make the area unattractive to the public at large is a factor against allowing it. And most of those cases um, involve sex-related establishments uh, in uh, Soho, in, in central London. But those sorts of concepts are potentially relevant to an argument that there should be a a removal uh, of a particular statue. And those were discussed to a degree in an aspect of the Coulson case known as the Jen Reed appeal. Um, Coulson, which we'll come back to, I'm sure, um, involved uh, a statue to a slave trader, that in the the Black Lives Matters uh, protests in 2020 was pulled off its plinth and thrown into the harbour. Shortly afterwards, an unauthorised replacement was put up of a um, one of the protesters, Jen Reed, who had stood on the empty plinth with her sort of fist up in salute. And that was uh, put up, very quickly removed by the local authority. The 
presence of the Colston statue was harmful uh, to people in the vicinity. So there, w- there is potential room for that sort of debate, um, but it probably is a matter between something which has become so widely offensive um, that you can say, well, actually, really, it just makes an unwelcoming place um, as opposed to uh, a smallish number of people um, who have a particularly strong view on that topic. But that that notion of being unwelcoming because of what is seen, there was also a factor uh, unsuccessfully in the attempt to remove the Rustat Memorial in Jesus College, Cambridge. So it's one of the issues that's around um, as, as a potential matter, and I'm sure will be returned to in some other situations. Mm, thanks, Richard. And that that, um, that case um, involving the Rustat Memorial was um, really fascinating. And I, and I mean, there, there, there were sort of other considerations because, of course, um, the the building in that case was a a religious building, a place of worship. Um, but the 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 notion, I guess, that that the interest um, value, if you like, of a memorial or a statue to a particular person is sort of diminished by people's opposition to the the subject matter of it. An object can still be of very significant historical interest, even if that interest is in a character um, to whom people today have quite justified opposition. Um, And I was really fascinated by a comment of the judge in the Rustat Memorial case, um, where he said that the, the college... Um, could still achieve its mission and its objectives for the use of that that building, that chapel as a place of worship, with the statue in place, even though there was evidence that some people found that statue um, quite offensive because of the purported links between um, that benefactor um, and the slave trade. I don't know whether something you, you you have any thoughts on. Yeah, yes, I mean, it arises really from the difference between the church jurisdiction and the way in which the secular um, heritage protection regime works. In in heritage terms, you are looking at architecture, and just very often with statues, it's it's actually the sheer artistic quality, which is the key factor. Who they represent may contribute to the historic interest, but those are uh, are matters which would be looked at. The uh, approach to, particularly to the Church of England, is that there's an ecclesiastical exemption. They're not subject to uh, the secular local planning authority listed building regime uh, in, in the main. But part of the working of that exemption is the expectation that heritage protection will be done as well by the church courts as it would be done uh, by the secular planning authorities. But the, the church courts are also concerned with the question of the church's mission, uh, to what extent the arrangements, and this bears on uh, pews, it bears on where the altar is, uh, and so on, reflect and advance the, the church's mission. And 
So what we have in the Rustat case, because Jesus College wanted to remove memorial from within the chapel, which was subject to the church jurisdiction, they had to get a faculty from the, the, the church courts and the chancellor of the diocese. And so he was looking at the heritage aspects, but was also looking at it from the very much the church perspective. Uh, and so what he does deal with is the question of sin, the question of forgiveness for that, uh, the question of us all being um, flawed human beings because, uh, and that uh, often what we do or say or think is is not going to be um, uh, agreed with by either everyone now or everyone in a different time. Uh, and so what you have is an approach which you'd have never have got from a planning inspector, although I think the result would have been the same. Uh, that um, the Chancellor decided that the memorial should stay um, and the fact that you are memorialising people who are um, in, in present eyes, not, not simply flawed, but um, had attitudes which would be completely unacceptable today, um, is, is not a reason to see, just to cease uh, their memorialisation in, in a church. So uh, it throws up quite a few additional issues beyond the sort of the conventional uh, heritage protection matters. Mm, really interesting to see that distinction between the two systems. Yeah, I guess uh, notions of sin and forgiveness aren't ones that you hear very often in uh, traditional sort of planning <laughs> planning cases, as you say. Certainly not. <laughs> um, I wonder if we could... Um, go back to that Colston case that you mentioned because that was um I think it's uh, one of the perhaps one of the the triggers for the writing of the book and certainly discussed um in sort of the mainstream UK press it was headlines for for, for a few weeks um, and I think there were quite a number of sort of political considerations um that that came into play um and indeed I think that case was possibly one of the one of the triggers for um, a, a bit of a um, not necessarily a, a change in direction but a, a sort of clearer statement of government policy surrounding contested heritage um, I don't know if you could uh, you could comment on on a few of those points Richard yes I mean first of all um, the Colston case and so I mean, Colston was a uh, late 17th century uh Figure. Um, he was the deputy governor of the Royal African Company, who were the company who basically ran the slave trade. So he was somebody who had an active role in, in the management of that process. But he was also a very major benefactor um, to the city of Bristol. Uh, and the result of that is that there are an awful lot of things which he'd funded, an awful lot of places uh, in, in Bristol which were named after him. Now, in the late 19th century, 170 years after he died, uh, a local publisher decided that there should be a statue of Colston, uh, and that statue was erected. And it's fair to say it has been contentious for quite a long time. Uh, although it was became a, a listed building, um, one of the quirks of it becoming more contentious and uh, Historic England reviewing 
um, slavery-related listings at the uh, 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade um, was actually to add a note to this and a further factor of historic interest uh, in the Colston statue was Colston's involvement in the slave, slave trade. So going back to uh, the, the, the comment you made earlier, Emily, that um, the fact that somebody may actually be a bad person doesn't actually necessarily reduce the historic interest in them. It, it might work the other way. Um, but the, the Colston statue was uh, pulled off its plinth in uh, June 2020 by a crowd, daubed with paint, thrown into Bristol Harbour, um, subsequently fished out. Uh, and a number of the matters that followed, one was the uh, Jen Reed appeal we've discussed, uh, a further was the prosecution of four of the people involved in its removal and um, it being thrown into the harbour. And they were charged with not with a heritage offence, but with criminal damage and were acquitted. Uh, that's a case which is now going to the Court of Appeal as an Attorney General's reference, so it won't undo the, the acquittals by the jury, uh, but the Court of Appeal may rule on uh, the lawfulness of some of the lines of defence run, uh, one of which concerned the, the question of um, the right to freedom of expression uh, and really to what extent that can justify uh, um, tearing somebody else's property down and throwing it into the nearest harbour. So that was, in the contested heritage debate, quite a major trigger. And there's been a, a significant government response, which we uh, set, set out in the, the book. Part of the government's response was to institute a programme of retain and explain as a policy. So rather than uh, getting rid of contentious items, uh, what was proposed was that uh, if there's a need to, to have some marker board, plaque, whatever, uh, nearby, which explains uh, the history of the person uh, and so puts the, the context in probably less self-glorifying terms than a lot of memorials would have. And so that's uh, an attempt to draw a sort of partway um, house between uh, those who would say, well, let's just keep keep what's there, uh, and those who would like the item um, to, to be removed. Uh, one problem, of course, with retain and explain, there of controversy, is who actually writes the explanation uh, and to what extent it's possible to agree um, on how that person is to be described, particularly, say, let's say, a context where there's more to them than simply that they had an involvement with the slave trade, for example. The, the other aspect of the government response was a series of changes to planning and listed building procedures uh, and elements of control, which were designed to ensure that more of these smaller items, because often the statues or memorials uh, and plaques and so on are often quite small items, are subject to a need for consent before they're removed. It prompted from the government side both a, a setting out of a policy approach, but also a change to the structure of the planning system 
to enable better control. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it, it's one thing to to have a policy which says we're going to exp- you know we're going to provide explanations, but uh, a lot more difficult in the achievement of, um, of of how that that plays out in practice. And like you say, who might write that? Um, you know, and uh, how you sort of get a consensus on what the right thing to say is because what satisfies one group of people um, might well not sit sit well with with another group. Um, and I can certainly think of you know a few examples where um, there has been significant discussion around those kinds of issues. I'm thinking of the um, statues and other memorialisations of Cecil Rhodes in in Oxford, for example, where um, I think that's been an issue, and there's there's no real resolution on quite what should what should happen with um, those statues in the first place, and then um, over you know what what should be written on on any plaque um, which accompanies them, to put it in simple terms, I guess. Um, Absolutely, and I think the the Cecil Rhodes. Um, examples are um, an illustration both of, of, of the contention and also of the effect of the change in approach. So uh, Rhodes was a successful uh, imperialist in the 19th century, uh, particularly in terms of what the British Empire was doing in Southern Africa, but in a, in, in a regime which was uh, harsh on uh, a lot of the native populations as well as um, uh, causing a lot of uh, contention uh, with the Boer settlers as well. But he also established the Rhodes Scholarships. He funded um, uh, a great deal of good works, uh, including in England. And Oriel College have um, a, a full-size statue of Rhodes on one of the buildings which he funded. And that had been contentious for quite a long time. Uh, but the commission which the college had set up to look into the topic um, firstly thought that it ought to be removed but uh, that really the government's retain and explain approach and the likelihood of the government sort of uh, intervening to make for a ministerial decision made it not worth the college trying to remove it so what we have is is an immediate effect of the government policy there and development in the the week we're recording this um, is that there's another commemorative plaque uh, to Cecil Rhodes in Oxford, uh, which has just been listed by the Secretary of State. Mm, mm. Thinking, I guess, um, a slightly connected issue about um, sort of increased public awareness of some of these issues and um, requirement for greater transparency and perhaps in some ways, also greater sort of um, representation of the diversity of contemporary society. Um, there's been a, a recent um, project by the arts education charity Art UK to um, take a look at and to catalogue all of the uh, public arts. I think it started in London and it's now um, th- moved throughout the country. So there's been a recent catalogue of, of British public sculpture um, and it takes in something like 13,500 works and they range from 
statues of politicians to contemporary abstract structures to war memorials, murals. And the website gives some of the stats, some of the data uh, behind these these reports, behind this catalogue, calculated that apparently only 2% of statues through the UK commemorate people of colour. So I think uh, just statues and memorials are... Um, something that you know people are thinking about more and are wondering whether that you know there is there is a way of making them more representative of the the ethics and the priorities of of contemporary society and I don't know whether there's anything within the um the listed buildings regime or the planning system um which kind of takes which can take us forward I guess in in that regard I think public art hopefully has the ability to inspire, the ability to um, raise interest to brighten the day. But, of course, it very much reflects, given how permanent it is, um, what the views were of the time. So uh, public monuments started to come into existence in Georgian times to a very limited degree. Uh, and some monuments to Napoleonic war heroes were put up um, around the end of end of that war, the early 19th century. Um, but you then get the heyday uh, in Victorian times, particularly with squares being laid out, areas being um, built. That the tendency was to put up quite a few statues, name streets after generals and prime ministers, uh, and the like. But that then, of course, reflects who's important at uh, at that time. Uh, the support for public art has continued. Um, Old Flow is actually a very good example of post-war um, public authority support in the context of a public housing estate uh, for public art. In, in the last few decades, developers of uh, projects have been encouraged to include uh, public art uh, in their schemes. And one uh, very good example of that is the Desert Quartet. Uh, that's um, a series of monumental bronze heads prepared by Dame Elizabeth Frink. And those were put up at the back of a shopping centre in Worthing to give interest to what otherwise um, would be a blank wall. So the loggia has been constructed and the heads um, put on plinths on top of those. So those were put in place in 1989, pursuant to the planning consent, and uh, the early part of this century, um, they were made listed building, um, so are now permanently preserved there. So you have that encouragement for developers to include public art as well as art that's included by subscription. The uh, moralisation of public art is particularly developed in the Victorian times, but those reflect whoever was seen as important there. So prime ministers, generals, engineers, and the like. Um, Queen Victoria appears uh, an awful lot on that, she takes one reason she takes a very large proportion of the modest number of named female uh, public statues is because of the, all the works of uh, Queen Victoria. Uh, then, when you come into uh, 
not only in that of the Victorian period where there's starkly war memorials more often, uh, those are almost always where they depict figures, they depict male figures. I think the only war memorial, similar military memorial, which uh, has a female figure, is of the um, Ulster Defence Regiment Memorial, uh, which I've seen recently in Lisbon in Northern Ireland, where there's uh, um, uh, two figures, one male, one female soldiers uh, who, who are shown. The public statues which are put up are a reflection of who is around and who is seen as important uh, at a particular time. And we look in a contemporary context that has to reflect uh, that men and women are equally important, sort of great roles in all in all respects, and that Britain is uh, a multi-ethnic uh, country, uh, and needs to, the, the salary needs to reflect uh, those particular changes. And I think that comes from questions of addition. So, um, perhaps the most recent. Um, uh, monument that's been erected as an certainly a pro, as a high profile uh, in central London is the new Windrush Windrush Monument, uh, which is in London Waterloo railway station, and uh, that commemorates uh, the arrival of Caribbean uh, immigrants initially on the ship Windrush uh, after the Second World War, uh, and it shows three figures. Uh, um, a black mother and father and their uh, daughter uh, standing on suitcases, uh, looking around them at their new home, which is Britain. So we're starting to get more um, of those examples, but I think it does become important that uh, public sanitary, in terms of what goes in place, um, is reflective of uh, what rep- represents the fact that 21st century Britain is different from 19th century Britain. Great, thanks, Richard. Really, really fascinating. Perhaps that's um, that kind of brings us up to date in our discussion, as it were, um, about some of these these issues and um, you know public art and public statues. I, I wonder if there's just, just any sort of passing comments from you. Any further points you wanted to make about your book? fascinating topic both for the the art market is something for um, uh, people who are selling art who are buying art for the auction houses to recognize this question of do you need consent for removal the the major auction houses have been alert to this um, for the last 20 years uh, in my experience Uh, but what we also have within that now is the debate what we have uh, reflects current views uh, and, uh, to some extent, some of the underlying debates behind contested heritage, which, uh, as you indicate, are often uh, actually very political. The Not so much on the slave trade, because you can all agree uh, on that one, but debates about uh, colonialism, about empire, are, in a sense, debates about uh, the place of Britain uh, in the world and uh, British history leading up to its current status and uh, how we all conduct themselves. So there's some uh, very big political issues which are underlying um, a lot of the uh, arguments and disputes 
which we're having at the present day. And what we're seeking to do in, in the book is, is not to uh, uh, settle the, the culture wars, um, but to um, explain, hence, the, the rules of engagement uh, and how that uh, works and, and plays out, uh, as well as the uh, day-to-day problems of people who um, happen to have works of art in, uh, in, in, in their garden and, and seek to sell them at auction. Thanks, Richard. Like you say, some really big issues um, that the book touches on. Uh, really fascinating, you know, going to sort of how a society um, imagines itself and what's, wants to represent itself and how that's reflected through history. Um, and so the book will, I am absolutely positive, be enjoyed by many people from many different angles, from art lawyers to, to those involved in planning and property, those dealing with heritage on a day-to-day basis, um, and certainly art law students. Um, and as I said, I enjoyed it um, immensely. Um, and I look forward to dipping into it, um, which I have no doubt that I will when I want to um, think back on some of these questions. So thank you so much for your time today, Richard. Yeah, Emily and Stephanie, thank you very much. There will be a link in the show notes, as well as a discount code for those interested in obtaining a copy of Mr. Harwood's book. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on your preferred platform. And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. You can also leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast, email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com, or leave a voice message at 1-929-260-4942. And the podcast Patreon page has rewards for those interested at patreon.com forward slash warfareofartandlaw. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.